0: All right, so I think it's time to get going. How we, hey, how we doing? Good. Good? Yes. Good.
1: Hey. Um, good?
0: Am I 14?
1: <coughs> 14. Thank you, I appreciate that.
0: Well, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but this is, I mean, it could happen 14 have three kids. I'm not good with biology, but let me tell you something, I am not 14, my mother, I uh, was visiting a few weeks ago, and she looked at me and she goes, where do those wrinkles around your eyes come from? And I was like, thanks, Mom. So, my mom let me know that I don't look 14 to her anymore. even you know, <laughs> this to you? Uh, it's not to everyone, but no, I'm not 14. Um, you want to guess how old I am?
1: Uh,
0: 37. All right, I'm done. I'm 37. See you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah I, so... Oh yeah, I, I used
0: to be offended and now I'm just grateful. I, I work at a church in Austin, Texas, and I got there when I was thirty-three. And so this was almost four years ago. And one of my the first Sunday I'm preaching. One hundred percent. I'm percent i I'm 37. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I have a free book. I, mean, I don't know, i feel like I should give you something. no, you have to buy it. I have kids. Um, but my first Sunday at this church, I'm about to preach and I walk in and someone goes, Welcome to Westover. Would you like me to put you to the college class? And I was like, I'm like the creature here. I don't know. And thank you for welcoming me to the college class. So uh, to answer your questions, I am not college, I'm not 14, and I have wrinkles around my eyes according to my mom. So I feel like uh, that's my introduction. So um, just just so we can start the conversation, I, I have a podcast. It's called Newsworthy and Norisworthy. Anyone listen to that in here? Yes? Yes? Okay, a few people. Was that yes or No, you are like... I didn't say no. I saved it, I saved it on my phone. Okay, that counts. I heard you on Suzanne Stabil's podcast. Suzanne Stabile. You were the second person to say that. Any Any Suzanne Stabile fans in here? Yes? So we have Enneagram people? You guys are just like, no, I don't like podcasts. I don't like Enneagram. I like Suzanne Stabile. <laughs> uh, it's called Newsworthy with Norsworthy. <laughs> and uh, my the story is... My last name is Norsworthy. That's not much of the story. The rest of the story is... When I was in high school, I had a football coach who would tell me, Newsworthy, or who'd say, noiseworthy, you keep working the legs, son, and one day you'll be Newsworthy. And I was like, well, I, I didn't do enough squats to become Newsworthy in football, but I at least got a podcast title out of it." So that's, that's the name of the podcast. And uh, in full self-promotional mode, I have a book, and I'm going to talk about that. And so... I, I don't know how to talk about a book without being like, hey, let me talk about my book. Like, no one likes someone who does that, and we're just going to put that out front. Like, I know I don't like myself for talking about my book, but it was either that or write new content, and so I was like, I'd rather just not write new content and dislike myself just a little bit. So we we got that on the table. That's where we're coming from, and um, are we good with this? Ground rules? Yes? All right. It's, uh, this is right before lunch, so I don't know. I'm impressed with y'all coming here and said, go to lunch. So, thank you for that. And we will get you out of time to go get some, some lunch. And we will not let the Baptist teach you to wherever you go to lunch. Okay, so let's start with the question. If you were God for a day, you could be God for a day. You can do whatever you want. Anything. Like, you're, you are God for the day. What would you do? Think about it. If you were God for a day, you have the ability to do any God thing that you want to do. What is the first thing? What is the one thing you would do? Yes. I'd be tempted to want to fix what everyone else has messed up ecologically in their relationship with their wife and stuff. and just have it clean for a day. Just clean for one day. Just clean for one day? Did you say you were into the Enneagram? I'm into what? The, I, no, I guess <laughs> not the Enneagram. <laughs> When you get home, Google Enneagram number one, though. No, that might be something for you to look into. Okay, so you'd, you'd fix everything, right? So that's the benevolent sort of, I'm going to be the, the parent who fixes the mess of the world. Okay, someone else, if you're God for a day, what would you do? Heal all
1: pain.
0: Heal all things? Okay. Give rid of pain. Yes. My dad's uh, a psychologist, and his area of emphasis is chronic pain. And so he would definitely appreciate a lot of the people that he knows having to do what you would do a good job for a day. Okay, so uh, get rid of uh, the mess. Uh, heal all pain. Everyone yeah, would know how much they love. Oh, that's a good one. Everyone would know how much they're
1: loved.
0: Yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. 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 You're too strong. Showing very strong, okay? So everyone know they're loved, the world be taken care of. we'll probably get rid of diseases, starvation, hunger, all that stuff to take care of. I, I actually did this, um, this interaction, this, this exercise on the streets of Austin, Texas where I, where I live. And so I had people come up and they would just walk by and I'd be like the, the guy in the street with the microphone and the camera. And like, which everyone usually just kind of does this number. Like, yeah. But for the suckers who actually talked to me, like this is the kind of answer you would get. I would make sure you know, get rid of all the things in the world that are bad. And there was this one, one lady, and she was she was draw, jogging through the streets of Austin. This is Austin; everyone like runs outside. They don't even have cars; they just run everywhere. And so there's this lady running, and so I have the microphone in my hand, and there's the camera guy behind me. I said, can you talk?" And she goes, "Yeah, well, I'll run with you." And so we, we have this like of communication, and so I'm running with her, and I'm doing this. And This is kind of funny because I think this is a funny shot. And I ask a question, and she goes, "I would bring back my dad." As I didn't have anything to say. And then she just turned around and goes, I'm sorry. So there's nothing to be sorry about. Because if you're God for a day, what more would you want than the person that you would maybe love the most in the world to be with you? As um, as there's some of us in this room who have experienced that, it makes perfect sense. But here's the problem with that. Almost everything we mention is something that God actually doesn't do. If that's what you think God would, should do, if you were God, this is what you would give God's job description for the day to be. it that hasn't happened. Like None of those things have ever taken place. Because our definition of what we think a good thing for God to do isn't always realized. That if you think this is what God should do, and you look around and you go, it's, a lot of hurting people. A lot of people don't know they're loved. A lot of people are missing a mom or a dad. There's a lot of hungry people. A lot of hurting people. And at some point you start asking these questions and go, this is what I think a good God should do. How come it's not happening?
1: How come it's not happening?
0: All right, so let me tell you my story. So I was born in West Philadelphia. So I was born and raised on the playgrounds where I spent most of my days. And I got in one little fight and I broke my front teeth, which is another story for another time. And then we moved to uh, rural Southeast Ohio. My dad used to teach at Northeastern Christian Junior College. And then when that school closed, we moved to uh, Southeast Ohio where my dad was part of Ohio Valley College, now University. And so I, I was always a part of church. It was always part of my life. And something happened when I was probably 14, 15 years old. I started reading the Bible. I don't know why, I don't remember like a, a particular youth minister saying this is what you should do. I don't remember like the church having some initiative to get everyone to read the Bible. It just, it just started happening. And my dad, who's a psychologist, would like subtly reinforce the behavior. And he wouldn't like try to push me too hard, but he's just like, So look, what would you read today? And I'd tell him, he goes, alright, here's three dollars, right? And I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> and he would just like subtly just like ask me a question, wouldn't like make me feel like I had to. And he, he was reinforcing the behavior and so, like, suddenly giving me this sort of, like, affirmation. And what happened is, like, this became just this this practice that I did every day. And it, it changed me. Uh, when I was in junior high, I kind of got in a little bit of trouble. Um, and then I started reading my Bible, and I just became a different person. And my discipleship to Jesus became important to me. And it just—I I became this different person. And so I went from being the kid who, you know, didn't get in trouble in junior high, and then I became like the Jesus kid, like almost within a matter of six months. And when I was uh, a sophomore, I was a Jesus kid at school, and we read the Bible every day, and of course, being a good Christian in junior high meant you didn't curse, you didn't watch the wrong movies, and you didn't drink anything. That was inappropriate. And so I was the Jesus guy. I did these things. And there was a kid on my high school wrestling team, his name was Mike Viger, and this was like... Al Gore's internet was just like a twinkle in his eye. Like it wasn't really the internet that we know today. But Mike Weigel had all these questions about Christianity. And so I was the one who would get the brunt of these questions. And he was a friend and we were on the wrestling team together. And so it became like a normal interaction where he would bring me like these pages of printed off questions. And they had like the little, the dots on the side of the paper. You remember those? Anyone? Yes? Okay. And so you get to rip those off the paper, And then he'd bring the paper and say, okay, what, do you, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And early on, like my faith, in some ways, was created around the idea that I've got to answer all these questions. Always be ready to give an answer for the faith, right? That's the language of scripture. And so I'm, I'm building this faith partly because I want to answer these questions. And I didn't know at the time, but in retrospect, I see what's happening is that it was kind of like I'm—I I was this guy who, who lived on the beach, not like one of these like not in the beach houses, but like like Tom Hanks and Castaway. Remember that movie, right? Where got the Wilson? And so he has to build like this shelter for himself. And so in some ways I was like this 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 guy who lived on this island, this, this deserted beach, and no one ever told me to be afraid of the water. No one ever said if you go to the water, you're gonna drown. If you go to the water, something terrible is going to happen. I just I just sense that I needed to be away from that. And so my my faith and my practices became this this everyday I'm building this this like sand castle to keep all the water out because I don't want any of these questions to come get to the core of who I am and prove me to be unable to answer these questions. And so I'm reading the Bible to give me the answers. And I'm, bu- I- I'm reading other books and I'm listening to sermons as a way to build this sort of protection away from the water to make sure all the cracks are sealed up. Now, fast forward a few years, I go off to college. Uh, I start preaching every Sunday. I start preaching when I was a sophomore in college. I'm preaching every Sunday by the time I'm a junior. I get an undergrad degree in Bible, have a couple internships, start grad school. And uh, I actually just saw him a second ago. Um, Mark Hamilton was my teacher for uh, Advanced Intro to the Old Testament at Adler Christian University. Mark Hamilton, brilliant. And so I, I go to this class, and I've been preaching every Sunday for a couple years. I read my Bible every day. I have an undergrad degree. I feel like... Like, I understand this book, like, I feel like I got the Bible kind of like I understand it, like I could quote Bible verses left and right. And I feel real good about it, and I get to this class and I realize, I, like I don't know anything, and I leave our final, and I told I told myself this is my reward. If I got through this class, then uh, I would I would go to Walmart and I'd buy something for myself because do you remember Donald Miller. He wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, you remember, remember that book? And in that, I think he tells a story, I think it's in this book, where, where Don says, I heard a preacher talking about the evils of TV, because if you watch TV, your brain's just, it's dead. Like your brain's not doing anything, it's not involved, and so you shouldn't watch TV because your brain's just dead. And his thought was, man, i love for my brain just to be turned off. that sounds great. And so I'm looking at the TV, and I was like, You know, I like like to play video games. And so I tell myself, if I get through this final, I'm going to go buy myself like an Xbox, which I hadn't played since I was in junior high. And so I gave this class because I know it's going to be tough. I get to the final, I know it's going to be tough, and I'm just thinking to myself, I don't know any of these answers. I really don't, so I'm just going to leave, and I'm going to go get the Xbox. (laughs) And I walked out of class, and I had this 1988 Honda Accord LX champagne colored. Some said it was dirt colored. It wasn't champagne. And I'm walking to this 1988 Honda Accord, and I just felt like my understanding of the Bible has been dismantled. And all of a sudden the enthusiasm to get this Xbox has evaporated as I realized there are a whole lot of cracks in the same castle that i built. There are a whole lot of things that I don't understand. There's a whole lot of water that's getting to me. And I don't think I said this for the first time, but I definitely wrote it in the book like I did. Um, But all theology is to some degree autobiography. If you tell me your story, I can probably tell you a little bit about how you understand God. And if you tell me how you understand God, I can probably tell you a little bit about your story. Because for us to think that theology is just this mental exercise of us trying to understand the divine, uh, what we do is we distance our own humanity. Because often how we understand God is part of what we've experienced. And so I would say that what happened with my faith, it it started this deconstruction, but it wasn't just the intellectual ideas that I couldn't put my arms around. It were the experiences that I had lived. It was uh, my mom's chronic illness, that no matter how much we prayed away, it it didn't leave. It was uh, the divorce of my brother. It was was my brother's divorce. It was my um, college roommate who despite every effort to pray away the gay, it didn't change his orientation. And years later, it would become my first ministry job, which was this train wreck. And all these things that happened to me coincided with these ideas that I couldn't make sense of. And so this this sandcastle that I had built to keep all the water out, all the questions, all the mystery, all the doubts, eventually proved to be false. And I couldn't keep it out. And eventually I felt like the water just grabbed me and I was upside down. Now there are a lot of uh, people who are a lot smarter than me who have given language to this process of the, the spiritual journey. I think it's Brueggemann who talks about order, disorder, order, reorientation. Uh, Paul Ricoeur talks about uh, naivete and then you go into the wilderness and then after that there's the second naivete. <laughs> Uh, Some use the language of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. And what happened for me is like this adolescent faith was this this thing that I was constructing. And then I had this this crisis where I had this deconstruction. And and I couldn't make sense of who God was supposed to be. The Bible didn't make sense. The church wasn't the way I thought it was supposed to be.
1: And I couldn't make my life work the
0: way I thought it was supposed to be. And and it deconstructed. And the problem was, like I was a pastor at the time. And it was my job. And so part of me is going... Like, what? Do, I have three daughters, like, they're not gonna pay for themselves. They're not very financially stable. Uh, they're a detriment to our financial status. <laughs> so what am I gonna do? Like, I, I can only download so many free-action sermons off of iTunes and try to preach them. I mean, I, what am I gonna do? Um, so I got this, uh, this couple uh, friend from our church in Austin and it's uh it's one of my Paul we we uh, went on a handful of ski trips and, and one of these ski trips he he, uh, he starts telling the story about uh, breakfast in the morning and he said yeah I never know how to make breakfast and I, I got married and I didn't know how to make breakfast and so he uh, Paul has this ski company and so he gets up super early in the morning and uh, he he over to his wife Rachel who who I worked with uh, at the time she worked in our office and um, he goes hey, Rachel uh, I've got to leave here about six thirty. So I figured you would just have breakfast ready for me by 6. <laughs> and she goes, excuse me? And he goes, yeah. I, I, I mean, my mom always made me breakfast. So I figured you would just make me breakfast. And she goes, you're not married to your mom. <laughs> now, miraculously, Paul doesn't have to make breakfast for himself. Uh, somehow, he actually cooks breakfast for the rest of us on ski trips, as if like that's a Tony for his transgressions, I guess. But you it's a marriage, and everyone has expectations. Right? This is what my family did. This is what my mom did. This is what my dad did. And I expect you to do that. You go into work relationships and you have, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. If You're in a church, if you're a preacher, and you have an elder relationship. This is how elders are restored. And our friends in the uh, 12-step community tell us the error and the flaw, the cancer of expectations. Where they say expectations are nothing more than premeditated disappointments. And that's true with your spouse with your employer, people at church, and also your relationship with God. That if you have expectations for what God is supposed to be, that God didn't say God was gonna do, they're premeditated disappointments, because that's what's gonna happen. And the thing about expectations is they just, they just appear like stains on a white couch. You just look at it and go, oh, that's there. Where did that come from? I have no idea. And they come from everywhere they come from your family of origin they come from your dad and your mom too they come from the latest morgan freeman movie that you watch they come from greek mythology they are almost any and everywhere that you can find your expectations come from but the problem about expectations is often when you look at the very bottom of that contract you signed with god where you tell yourself if i do this then god is going to do that if i go to church then god's not going to let this happen to me if i read my bible then god's going to do this for me if I study, if I read enough, I go to seminary, then God will have to give me all the answers that I've ever had about how God's supposed to work. The problem is that you look at the bottom of those contracts that, that we all have. No, it no, have maybe literally written them, but we all have them. When you look at the bottom of those contracts, you realize that there's only one signature. And it's just yours. It's not God's. Eugene Peterson said this about expectations. He said, but Jesus does not always meet our expectations. doesn't always give what we ask for or what we think we need. When he, Jesus, does it, we feel let down, deflated, disappointed, or we surf to another channel on TV, or we try out another church that will hopefully give us what we ask for. You ever been there? Jesus, this is what you're supposed to do. Right? Like if I pray enough, then I'm not going to have this struggle anymore. If I study enough, then I'm going to understand everything. If I did the right thing, then good things used to happen to me in my life. But the problem about expectations is that they are truly premeditated disappointments. Because you look at the bottom of them and you realize, God didn't sign that. And if I had to guess, from my experience as as a pastor and the people I've interacted with in, in different settings... When it comes to faith, this, this process of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, the idea that, like, I'm building my faith, and then you get to this, this crisis of faith doesn't work and all tears apart, and you have to go, am I either just going to give up, or am I going to rebuild it, right? And, and often, like, the first option is, like, I'm going to retrace the same steps, I'm going to listen to the same songs, I'm going to go to the same conferences, I'm going to read the same books, and hopefully I can just kind of get back to where I used to. Be. So, like, you, you try to play the old game, and that doesn't work, and then you realize, well, I guess I'm either going to have to start over or I'm going to have to give up. And and often as I hear these stories, like there's two main things, two main like categories that cause this deconstruction. And I don't know if these are true for you, but I feel like they're true for a lot of people. Is it's the Bible and suffering. It's the Bible and suffering. Like I don't know about you, but like I have certain expectations for what I think a good sacred text should look like. I got, there are certain things that I think, like, this should be how it should work. I think when, when I read uh, the book of Acts, and Paul recounts that, like, uh, Saul of Tarsus to, to Paul conversion thing where the light comes out, and you remember that story? There's three accounts of that in Acts. And Paul recounts it different two different times. Yep. One, he says, uh, the people with me, they, they, they saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice. And the other time, they saw the light that they did here. He switches it, and you go, I feel like in the Bible, like that, that shouldn't be there. Like, they should get that right. I'm doing a, a series on Daniel that I'll start uh, when I get back uh, to Austin next week. And Daniel like gives chronology of when this happens. Like, the problem is it doesn't match up with other chronologies in the Bible. Like The, the dates in, in Kings don't match the dates in Daniel. You go, well, can't yeah, they, like, get this straight? Like, that's not that hard. Like, I just erase something and pick one. Like, just go with one of them at least, you know? And, and there are all these other examples. And some are, are, are minute and some are more substantial. Like, in Matthew's gospel, like, when it says this is from a prophet, it should be the right prophet. But there's a, an example where that's not even the case. They quote a prophet and they claim it to be a prophet, and it's not even that, that prophet. And you go, well, that's not how a sacred text should work. And so I, I look at this and I go, it's not this, this smooth surface that I think, I, I feel like every issue should be ironed out, right? Like, unlike my shirt right now, like you should get every wrinkle out. It should all, I don't know you're laughing at that. That's kind of hurtful. It didn't work. It's survival, but it's also, it's also suffering, right? Am like the presence of it? i have this uh, this guy who's part of my church outside of Dallas. I used to be part of a church there before I went to Austin and a uh, the name named Mitch He, he texts me one day He texted me. No joke. He says Please pray for my mom. She's been shot in the neck by an arrow Now I think most communication should be through texting right? I think that's just biologically true like you have ten fingers only one mouth like the math says Use your fingers and text. That's the right way to do it. But when you send me a text message that says your mom was shot in the neck by an arrow, I'm going to call you. Every time. <laughs> and so I called my friend and I go, um, So, what happened? And he says, I. She's okay at the end. Let me just, so that the story, I feel like we can enjoy it more. If you know at the end it's going to be good, okay? So let me just enjoy the story now. Knowing how it's going to be okay? We're good with that? Okay. So what happens? He says, His mom goes to her back porch She's on her back porch and she's standing behind this bush, underneath the the, uh, the roof, in between two hanging plants, okay? So there's a bush up to like this height, two hanging plants, a roof, and she's right here. And an arrow flies under the roof, between the two hanging plants, over the bush, hits her right in the neck, just millimeters away from the carotid artery. And so she stumbles into the house and her husband's sitting there watching TV and he looks up and his wife looks like an extra from Braveheart. Like, can you imagine that? Like, you What happened? You have an arrow in your neck. And so he rushes her to the hospital. Of course. They get to the hospital. Um, the doctor comes out and says, Sir, we have great news for you. The arrow was a practice arrow. So it doesn't have like the pointy razor stuff. It was actual honey. And it was just millimeters away from the carotid artery or whatever, uh, that's in their neck. And if it would have hit that, uh, she would die. And so he looks at the arrow, and he realizes that this arrow is only sold at one store in Amarillo, Texas, where they live. And it's a store that my friend Mitch's older brother owns, which instantaneously makes Mitch the best son, because he hasn't sold an arrow that's ended up in mom's neck. But the story isn't in there. They call her back in like two days later and says, Mrs. Barber, while you're in, we did some brain scans and, uh, or CAT scans or whatever, and we found that there is a small tumor in your brain. And it hasn't grown large enough, so you come back in right now, we'll do brain surgery, and there's gonna be no issues. And so, an arrow that shot underneath the root, between the hanging plants, above the bush, you know, barely right next to the, car to the artery, that was a practice arrow, was actually the thing that saved your life. And you go, that's how God should work, right? Like, if I die, That's what I'm going to be doing. Like, arrows. That's going to be my thing, All day, every day, just arrows. Like Cupid, right? But most of the time, let me tell you a real fact, and I'm not like a a war expert or anything, but most of the time, when people get shot in the neck with an arrow, it doesn't save their life. But that's how it should work. Most of the time you get shot in the neck, you just don't don't live. Most of the time when bad things happen to you, it's
1: just bad things.
0: And often when we think about... Like our relationship with God, we don't think that like our experience dictates as much as it much of it as it really does. Because it's not just our ideas about God; it's our experience with God. And the thing about suffering compared to love—they both cause you to say things. Like when you're in love, you promise things: "I will always be there for you. Like I will, I will tickle your back every night. I will always hold your hand. I will never complain." that you, make, you never make the bed in the morning, right? Like, you promise things. Love makes you promise, but adversity and suffering makes you question. Right? Do you remember the story about Nancy Kerrigan? The ice skater, 1994. There's the drama with her and Tanya Harding, and uh, there's, a, like, a just a dreadful, like, heartbreaking movie about Tanya Harding. She's like, just... just heartbreaking situation she grew up in, which doesn't excuse the fact that, like, her significant other, decided, I'm going to take a a stick and hit Tanya Harding in the knee. And that happened right before the Olympics, and there was news coverage all around, and so they recorded the scene. Do you remember what the recording had Nancy Kerrigan say as soon as it happened? Why? 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 It was why? Why? Why me? Why? Because suffering makes us ask the question, why? And we see this with the Jewish... Text. How many songs? How long are we? How long? Why must we wait? Where are you, God? What are you gonna do? The the poets, the, the prophets, these are all like asking the question of of why. Uh N. Wright. Um, he was once on my podcast and he talked about how uh, there's this incident in 19 excuse me, 1755, called the Lisbon Earthquake. And he says that what happened there, there's this earthquake on All Saints' Day. And it was this terrible tragedy. And there was this 20 foot tsunami that rushed ashore, killed thousands of people, and death tolls have been estimated between 10,000 and 50,000 people from this terrible tragedy that happened on All Saints' Day, 1755. And Wright says that that was the day that changed and, in some ways, gave birth to deism. Because the idea that if you look around and see God, Evaporate when you see 10 to 50,000 people die in All Saints Day because of an earthquake. The suffering makes us ask the question, why? Uh, the um, uh, famous biologist uh, Charles Darwin, uh, has created this work that you know, many people believe is like a strong argument against Christianity. Because um, it gives the mechanics for how uh, evolution works. And a lot of people think that, you know, Darwin's faith, which initially had then kind of, like, dissipated, happened because of what he found in the science laboratory. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are arguing that that's actually not what happened. It was actually what happened when Darwin's 12-year-old daughter got sick and eventually died. That what changed his faith was not something he learned in the science laboratory, but something he experienced. The suffering isn't just... This thing that you experience is something that, that dictates how you understand God. And so Tom Wright talked about how that suffering led people into this deistic view, like that God's distant from the world. And, and for me, like these things caused, caused me to kind of slide into cynicism. The thing about cynicism is that it just, it, in, in the language of Habakkuk, like Habakkuk says that um, it's greedy like the grave. It never gets enough. It's always wanting more. And the thing about cynicism is that it, it can keep cutting all the way down. And it just doesn't ever stop, right? Because for me, it was like, I constructed this thing. I thought I could keep all the water out, and then the water kept getting in. And I couldn't make sense of this faith that I needed to work for me. And it got to the point where my dad, who his dissertation is in chronic pain. He's a cancer survivor. Uh, and he and I have a great relationship. But it got to the point where whenever he would call me, he would say, you know, Luke, I know I can't. I'm not sure exactly if this was God that helped someone uh, feel good about their day, but I'm I'm praising God for it. And my dad was like having to couch his gratitude for God because I was so cynical. And my wife, she's a she's a neonatal ICU nurse, and so she does some amazing like life-changing things. There was recently a um, for yearly NICU uh, alum reunion, and so it's all these babies that were just like this big, and now they're alive and and well. Uh, the other day, they uh, had this reunion, and someone walked up and goes, Oh, you were the one who uh, who did chest compressions all night and kept my, my daughter alive. And so my wife had come home with these experiences, some very heartbreaking ones and some good ones. She goes, you know, I just, this is a blessing from God that this baby's alive. And I go, well, you know, if all babies aren't alive, are you really sure it's a blessing from God? <laughs> my wife's like yeah, I saw it dead, now it's alive. Like, how, what's wrong with you, Luke? Right? You have a piece of paper that says you've mastered divinity. You clearly have it. What is wrong with you?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so that was construction. Deacon. That's kind of like the lowest point. But something changed. There's something that, that happened. And so let's go back to the metaphor of... So you're this guy on the beach, built a castle to keep all the water out. And eventually one day a wave comes in. That you can't stop, you can't buff it enough. And one day the water came in, washed the sandcastle all, all away, and it pulled the guy off the shore. And then what happened for me in that moment, as I realized that the water that I was so afraid of was not water seeking to destroy me, it was water trying to deliver me. That the very thing I was trying to keep out was the living water like how I was trying to use, to save it. I don't know if we have any uh, NASCAR fans in the room. Any NASCAR fans? No? I don't think so. Yeah, kind of. Okay, my grandma likes NASCAR. So, uh, you and her would like this illustration. Uh, there's this uh, race a couple years ago, in which David Kirkpatrick was, um, she was actually doing well in the race, and then someone hit her, and then she was uh, going right into the wall. And so they had these like amazing cameras where like you actually see her in the car and like, they should, like, make airbags or something so she doesn't crash the wall long the cameras. Like, that's just me. Again, I'm not an automotive expert. But, so there's David Patrick. She's fighting, she's fighting, she's fighting. And as, just as she's about to get to the wall, she does the weirdest thing. She lets go of the wheel. Like, she goes, like, all, like, Carrie Underwood. Like, just, Jesus, take the wheel. And then the car crashes into the wall. And you see the steering wheel violently twist. And so what I've researched and heard is that Danica's experience as an F1 racer gave her this sort of like this, this typical move that many drivers do. Because if you're about to go into the wall and your, your wheels are going to hit, the torque is going to be so strong that no matter how strong your wrists are, any athlete's wrist would snap in half. And so if she's holding on to the, to the wheel as it hits the wall, it's going to turn and her arm's going to be broken. So sometimes the best way to save yourself isn't to keep holding on, but to let go. It's almost like the words of Scripture where Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. What I found is that eventually you just have to to let go. To not expect God to be what you want God to be and receive what God actually is. To choose God over your definition of what's good. Uh, there is a 14th century church leader named Catherine of Siena, and the Catholic Church is given the highest honor, she's considered a, a doctor of the church. And she has this, this beautiful poetry where she says, You, O eternal Trinity, are a deep sea into which the more I enter, the more I find, the more I find, the more I see. O abyss, O Godhead, O sea profound, what more could you give me and the term for me is realizing that what God has given me isn't exactly what I think God should be. It's not the sacred text the way I think it should be. It's not the way God works with suffering. But what God has given me is God, and, and that's enough. And what I used to think about faith is that if, if, if I had enough, enough of whatever, then I could build enough defenses and keep the questions out and fit God in this little box that I can fully understand and explore. But I realized that what I get is God, not this expectation for how I think it's supposed to work. Uh, there was the um, famous uh, atheist uh, writer and uh, scientist Dawkins, Richard uh, Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. He, he has this scale about uh, unbelief in God. And so he would say that I'm not an atheist, but I'm actually agnostic. Because he said, I can't fully prove. And so he has a scale of like zero to seven. And he goes, I, I'm, I think he says, you know, I'm like a 0.1. Like, I'm almost convinced that there's no God in the world, but that's why I'm going to say I'm an agnostic, because I can't fully know the answer to that question. And so there's always, like, this glimmer of that, maybe, like, I don't know. And for me, I, I've come to the conclusion that I, I'm probably never going to get to all the way the opposite end of the spectrum, which is a 7. Like, the, the true believers you know exactly, this is definitely exactly how it's always going to be. I fully understand God, I know how God works, and God fits exactly every expectation I want. If I make like a 6.8 on my better days, a 6.9, and I know that those, those questions and that mystery and that unknowing will always be there. But my faith is not contingent upon all the way getting to seven. It's not on God fitting my definition of how the Bible should work. It's not fitting my understanding of how theodicy should be. But what God has given us is God, and, and that's enough. And so it, it's enabled me to kind of go back and reassess these. Like I, I have a deeper view of the Bible now than I used to. And it's funny that my old attitude and many atheists had the exact same attitude about the Bible, that it had to be perfect to be valuable. It had to be perfect to be inspired. And so they would say, it's not inspired, therefore you should throw it away. And there are some who say, well, it is perfect, and so I'm going to throw away all the questions. But for me, I've, I've started to cling more to the words of Hebrews, where it talks about all scriptures inspired, or that's Timothy, but the language from Hebrews of, that it is, God's word is this sword. That's, that's sharp enough to separate bones from ligament, to separate sinew. It's, it's willing to go all the way down to your core. And what the Bible has never promised us is that it would always be smooth. What it's promised us is that it'll always be sharp. And so one of the things that I, I really value about my, my education my advanced Old Testament intro class, my languages, all that, is that you learn so many great tools about what Scripture is. And is. You learn context, you learn background, you, you, you learn to diagnose, you learn to exegete, you learn to understand context. But for all that, there's always one element that, that you can't put underneath the microscope. Does that make sense? Are you any sports fans, like any, any baseball fans? Right? So there's a guy named Bill James who a few years ago introduced the idea of advanced analytics, right? So it's, it's changed baseball. And I actually have a, a guy at my church who is the, the regional scout for the Oakland A's. And uh, Billy Bean, uh, Moneyball, heard of his name. So he's one of the, the main guys who's kind of pushed his, like analytical understanding of sports into baseball. And so i got a guy from my church who works right there with him. He actually was the guy who said, yeah, we should draft um, Tiger Murray. He'd be a great baseball player. He's now playing football. So anyway, uh, pray for my friend, okay, uh, Armand, <laughs> he needs it. And, and so uh, this advanced analytics has moved not just to baseball, but also basketball. And so basketball has all these extra stats that years ago they didn't have. And it used to be, well, how many rebounds, how many points do you have? And now there's a lot more complicated ways to understand that give us a better picture. Like What's your plus minus? What's your PER? What are all these things that, that give us a real scientific understanding of how you're performing? And I heard a guy named Steve Max. She was a two-time MVP. Uh, and he now works for the Golden State Warriors in this consultant role. And I heard him in an interview say, for all the benefits of analytical stats and how it's improved the game, there will always be part of it which you can't calculate. You can't calculate just how well guys like each other. You can't calculate how they like to play together. You can't calculate that thing that makes some people just go when things are hard and others just kind of back away. There's also something you just can't put underneath the microscope. And for me, when it came to Scripture, I realized I I don't need it to fit my modern definition of how a sacred text should be. I'm never going to get Scripture to to have Paul not contradict himself. But what I will get is God's Word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's sharp because it points us to Jesus. And according to John, Jesus is the Word, made flesh. And Jesus is inspired and fallible without any fault or error. And Scripture is meaningful because it points to Jesus. And I've started to realize that God doesn't just fit this small definition. Because I I think that's ultimately the the move when we're trying to say this is how God should work. Because what we're doing is we're putting God in a a box, right? And no matter how nice and how pretty and, like, all the the purple velvet you put in it or the gold on the outside, like, God just doesn't do that. God's not going to fit in your box. But what God will do is God will show up and be all around you. Uh, there's a phrase that we used to say, or I'd hear a lot of people say, especially when I was in college, is, you know what? God just showed up, right? Got an arrow on, uh, on my neck. Turns out it came from the brain. God showed up, right? I, I would say this a lot like when I was an undergrad. Specifically, like if a girl would go on a date with me, i like, God showed up, right? Like it's a miracle. That happened. And that language, I, I think it's a, a, a really positive impulse to give credit for good things that have happened to you to something bigger than yourself. It's an attempt to express gratitude to God, and so that impulse, I think, is so helpful. But if we only think God shows up in good times, what does that say about God the rest of the time? Right? Is is God like the um, like the high school friend who only calls you once you hit it big? Is God like the like the stepdad who doesn't want to be around when things are hard? Right? Is is that what God is? Or is God the loving spouse who the terms visiting hours don't apply to when you're in the hospital? Or is God the one who doesn't need to be reminded that God showed up because God never left? And, and what I think the invitation of spirituality is not to say, well, this is God because God fits this and this happened the right way, but to see that God is all around right. And that's the witness of Scripture from the Jewish text of the New Testament. The psalmist says, where, O oh Lord, can I go to flee from you? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go into debt, into shield, like the, the, the dark afterlife, you're there. And even darkness is not dark to you. Uh, this is what Paul does in Acts 17. He, he referenced some uh, first century kind of like pop culture. And he says, e- even your God say that, that we live and move and breathe and have our being inside of it. That, that God is all around you. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great line where he says, Um, we can ignore and we can attempt to evade but we cannot escape the presence of God because it's all around you. And so the real work is to come awake and to stay awake that God is always around you. And I think the invitation for healthy spirituality is to make that same same move. Obviously, when God doesn't live up to your definition of what you think God is supposed to be you're going to lose something. There's a, there's a grief process. I've got a friend in my church uh, back in Austin. Uh, her name's Betty. And Betty lost her eyesight years ago. And uh, she's got this great joke that uh, when, when her and her husband, John, uh, Jonathan her, are walking around the church, she says to me, Luke, I'm here with your favorite shepherd. And, I mean, she knows our elders, so it's not a high bar. But she says, here, my German shepherd, like her C&I dog, which I completely... I've got one member from my church. I don't agree with that, Um, but she says that Yes. Okay. And so now, uh, she used to work um, in this, uh, this group that helped teenage kids deal with the loss of their eyesight. Something that she's experienced herself. And I can't imagine what that would be like if you're 13 years old, and you have your sight, and the doctor says, six months left. And she's worked with with many of these kids. And she says the ones that she's most worried about are the ones that do what she calls McDonald's grief. They're trying to do like this fast food version of grief where they just kind of rush through it. Because they don't ever sit with it. And then they can't get to the other side of it. And sometimes we have this this loss of, of a God that isn't the God that's offered to us. A, a God that we would like to sign our contract and go, God, this is what you're supposed to do when you look down. God never signed that. When God doesn't live up to that, you have to take the time to mourn. You have to acknowledge that there is a loss. That you want the Bible to be something. And it might not be that. That you want God to work a certain way with suffering. And that's not what God's offering. There's got to be a mourning that you allow yourself to do. I also see you have to make room for... The maturation of your your faith and your understanding of god I, when i was a kid one of my um favorite things to do when we had a family game night we would uh, my, my grandparents loved to play this um uh game called chicken foot we played with dominoes you know that game right and you just kind of line them all up and eventually when my grandparents got done with this i would like finally get to do what i want to get to do what i wanted to do with dominoes mm-hmm. which is like line them up and make like these structures and so my brother um He's just a terrible person. Um, <laughs> but he like his like whole goal in life was just to make me like unhappy. And so he'd wait until I had it almost all like perfectly structured, and he'd kind of sneak around the corner. You know what he would do? He would knock over one of them. And when he knocked over one of them, you know what happened to dominoes. They all fall down. You knock one down, they all fall down. And sometimes our our beliefs are structured like dominoes. That if one of them falls and they all it all comes crashing down. And what I think we need to learn to do is to differentiate. Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ Jesus was crucified and buried resurrected according to Scripture. What I received as first importance. He goes, death, burial, resurrection. Like, that's first importance. In the same way that Jesus would say the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor. And I think when like, our picture of the Bible becomes of first importance, we're setting ourselves up for dominoes to get down. Because what I think Paul says is of first importance probably should be first important to us too. But not everything's equal. Any of you have heard of uh, Barbara Brown Taylor? She's an Episcopal priest, New York Times best known author, uh, one of my favorite people in the world. And uh, the last time I had her on the podcast, she ended the conversation by saying, I love you, Luke. So um, we're basically best friends. <laughs> She wrote in her, uh, not her most recent book, her, her uh, penultimate book, that's a great word to use, um, I learned that in Greek class, thank you, ACU, uh, her second last book called uh, Learning to Walk in the Dark. She says, she had this line about, my box of beliefs used to be like this big, um, this big cupboard. had all stuffed in there. But over the years, this, 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 this box of, of certain beliefs that I definitely knew were 100% right. It's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And now it's just the size of a shoebox. The thing about a shoebox is it can probably float. It gets dragged out to sea and it probably can float. If it's a big old bin. It might not. But if you hold the right things to be of first importance, when life sucks you off the land and you're disoriented and you're upside down, Those things can keep you alive. It can keep you afloat. And so maybe the invitation for us isn't always the one that we want. The contract that we would like to have God move into is one that God has an offer to sign. But what God has given us is Jesus. And for me, I think that's enough. All right, well, thank you for being in the class. I'm going to let you out a minute early uh, to go get lunch. Uh, But let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. God, we thank you that in Jesus we have seen the fullness of you. That in Jesus you have given us all that we need. You have given us yourself and what more could we ask for? And so God, teach us to cling to you. Not to our expectations, but let us hold to the promises. The promise that you will not depart us, that you will not forsake us, you will not abandon us. So give us eyes to see how you are with us even in the darkest moments. And even when it seems like life is trying to destroy us, let us trust that your spirit is in the midst of us trying to deliver us. And we thank you for being a God who is always loving and
1: always for us. Praise in your name. Amen. Amen.